We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week. ICRT's roundup of the top news stories from around Taiwan over the past seven days. I'm Keith McConey of ICRT News. Joining me in studio today is Gavin Phipps, also of ICRT News. Hey, good evening. And we've got a full house today. Also in studio are two frequent contributors to the show, Jane Ricards of The Economist. Hello to you. Good evening, Keith. And Ross Feingold of DC International Advisory. Thanks for being here as well. Good evening. Uh, right back here. You were here on Saturday, so uh, thanks for making the frequent trip over here. No problem. Uh, well, I was kind of hoping to do a bit of a recap uh, of the election today, but, geez, I mean, it's uh, just a week ago, but a whole lot has already happened since then. Uh, and I think just recapping this week, uh, we can barely fit that into one so. Uh, so that we're just going to have to skip the election recap and uh, go straight to its aftermath. Uh, and we're going to start uh, with just kind of covering the political landscape as it stands. Uh, so as it stands, Tsai Ing-wen uh, led the DPP to a sweeping victory on Saturday, nabbing both the presidency and its first ever majority in the legislative yuan. Uh, the KMT, meanwhile, has been beaten back to a 35-seat minority position. Uh, so President-elect Tsai is set to take office in late May. And the big question this week has been, Who's going to run the country until then? Well, the surprising answer we've been uh, getting from both political parties has been not it. Uh, let's break it down a bit for folks out there who have uh, kind of missed the blow-by-blow blow here. Uh, Premier Mao Jigua and his cabinet resigned en masse after the election results came in. Uh, and now it seems like neither party is willing to appoint uh, the replacements. Uh, Gavin, uh, tell us what's been going on there. Not a lot, really, because they've both refused to do anything. I mean, the cabinet resigned. I guess they did something, really, didn't they? They went out and resigned. So did the Premier, Mao Zedong. Unfortunately, no one else has done anything. Ma Ying Zhou hasn't accepted their resignations, and the DPP is refusing, like you said, Keith, to form the next cabinet. All of which has become rather a sticky wicket for President Ma Ying Zhou, who is still insists that his government is not a caretaker government, even though he currently doesn't really have a government. And. So, Basically, that's the end of it. And uh, just to cover what the DPP has been saying, they're basically saying they can't do it on constitutional grounds. Well, they're refusing. They're, they're, I mean, they're, which is quite ironic, really, because, of course, Ma ying has been touting the Constitution for the past eight years, being a Constitution says yes, Constitution says no. Now the DPP has thrown this back in his face and said, well, you know, you, you want the, us to form the cabinet because we have a majority in the legislature, but unfortunately, the ROC Constitution, as it currently stands, does not allow for a cabinet and a head of state from a different party. Well, that, that, that's an arguably incorrect analysis. The, the fact is the president can appoint whoever he wants to be the premier and the members of the cabinet or the, or the ministers in, in charge of the various ministries and commissions and agencies that are under the executive UN. And he does not require the president's uh, – sorry, the parliament's or the legislative UN's uh, consent to appoint those persons to those jobs. So he could appoint anyone he wants regardless of what party they come from. Yeah, my impression is the DPP both doesn't trust Ma, so they would, don't want to cooperate with any of his people. And secondly, they're not really ready to take government. They've just been – they ran a very well-run election campaign, but now – Well, if they don't not- trust him and they're not ready, then they should say that rather than make up a, what might be a specious constitutional argument, tying when being a lawyer should know better. 
Yes, and another thing too, you make that's a very good point, Ross. But another point I'd add is I believe that Sangwen is probably reaching out to China, and they're probably reaching out to China through the Americans. And I think they want they don't want anything interfering with that. And there could be a lot of mixed signals if um, they're working in cooperation with Mayingjol. And, and perhaps it's uh, worthwhile to bring up uh, just a little bit of uh, Taiwan history here. I mean, the, 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 there is some precedent in terms of uh, there being a bit of awkwardness with the handover of power during this four-month period. Isn't that right? Well, there's a precedent with, with a lot of the issues that are at play here. First of all, when Chen Shui-bian was elected president, his first premier was from the KMT, Tang Fei. Unfortunately, for a variety of reasons, he only lasted a few months. Um, and there's certainly a precedent for resignations when a party underperforms in, in legislative UN elections. So under Chen Shui-bian, several of his premiers resigned immediately after the party uh, did not, the DPP did not perform as well as expected in legislative UN elections is at the time when the, the schedules for elections were not harmonized. So whether it's KMT or DPP, President Ma, Tsai Ing-wen, people were, were prepared for this eventuality, I think. And, and uh, the, the unfortunate thing here is there's no system of a shadow cap. So the DPP didn't have people who could just step right in and take these jobs. Um, I think the DPP has a game plan, and I think its priority once the legislature is inaugurated on February the 1st is to pass a transition bill. And the transition bill will kind of codify the way Tsai Ing-wen will interact with President Ma Ying-jeou during this period, and perhaps the transition bill might cover some of the issues we've just discussed. Well, are, are, are you suggesting they're going to pass a bill or... or- First, negotiate and pass a bill in February. There's going to be Lunar New Year. So the bill might get passed at the end of February, beginning of March, and then immediately implement it for the remaining seven or eight weeks before the handover. That's the impression I got from the way they were speaking. Seems rather unusual from just a process perspective. Maybe you you negotiate it and say this will apply next time. So, 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 Jane, it sounds like uh, just based on that, uh, perhaps what we can expect is uh, the DPP is kind of biding time now so that they can uh, form this tradi- uh, transition more on their terms. Is that the impression you're That's getting? That's the impression I have, yeah. Mm. Well, I'm not sure what more terms they need than, than the president saying you could be the premier, you could be the ministers of all the ministries. What more terms do they need? But they're going to be anyway. So why not take it now? Softly, softly, catchy monkey. Yeah, well... <laughs> I, I personally think a critical issue is China. And if you look at the front page of the Taipei Times, Ma says his caretaker isn't, apparently isn't in his dictionary, whatever that means. And Ma was talking about continuing the trade agreements and he was talking about the dangers of Taiwan's marginalisation. He said he wouldn't stop, even though you know he'd, his KMT had been voted out of power. And quite frankly, if um, he's trying to do that and he's got a DPP government and Tsai wens trying to work out some sort of arrangement with China behind the scenes for the next four years, it just could get messy. And that's why I think the DPP is better off just having a clean start, you know, on May 20th without sort well, of the, getting all complicated. Well, even if that's the case, it, it still behooves the DPP not just to say, no, no, we don't want it, it's not constitutional. And why don't they come up with a proposal and say, well, look, if you don't want to appoint a minority government of, of KMT-affiliated ministers. Let's, let's all agree on a bunch of technocrats who, who could uh, oversee the government. But, but don't just walk away after saying throughout the election period, vote for us because we're ready to govern. That, that's not leadership. All right. So uh, we're left here, uh, as I think all of Taiwan is kind of scratching their heads, wondering what is going to come next. Uh, And uh, four months. Well, that's a long time. A lot can happen in four months. So uh, perhaps a a, a messy four months uh, in front of us that we have waiting. Uh, But we're going to move now to the other big news of this week. Uh, This one also involves goings on at the legislative UN. Uh, But these would be shady goings on. 
which have uh, apparently, these shady goings on, have apparently now ensnared Legislative UN Secretary General uh, Lin Shishan, along with a whole bunch of other LY officials. Uh, Gavin, uh, Secretary Lin has been detained amid a probe into alleged irregularities in yeah. government procurements. Uh, yeah. Tell us about that. Yeah, he's one of four people who have been detained. They detained four people earlier this week on allegations of corruption in a case involving computer purchases for the legislature, of all things. So this wasn't the legislature as in the lawmakers. This was the legislative UN's like, administrative body. Mm. The people that are behind the scenes and run the place. Right. Clean the floors, put the desks in. Install the computers, basically, yeah? Right. Anyway, apparently allegations say that Lynn... Apparently, there's a, the numbers being a bit different. The numbers range from 7 million NT to 10 million NT, depending which newspaper you read. And that's the amount of kickbacks he's allegedly taken from this company called Farnet Technologies. Which is a, apparently this company um, was awarded like 32 contracts with the legislative UN over the years. Because, mm. of course, Lynn has been the Secretary General since 1999. Uh-huh. Well, once again, I'm just shocked to find out that there's corruption going on in government procurement. And this was computers, IT stuff, you know, it wasn't... And, of course, the big question is, let me move on from that, there was, there was allegations, there was um, supposition and there was... Rumours that this was connected, of course, to the Wang Jingping Maing Zhou dispute. Well, that I mean, uh, that those uh, that speculation, of course, comes from the timing of this all. It is uh, rather interesting timing that these revelations come out only a few days after uh, such an important election. Uh, so, yes, there is some uh, amount of speculation uh, that. Perhaps this has to do with some internal behind-the-scenes uh, political wranglings. Jane, do you think that there's anything to that, or, or is it just speculation at this point? Well, um, analysts have mentioned to me that there's a possibility that Maing Zhou might have sort of sent his attack dogs on Wang Jinping because Lin was Wang Jinping's right-hand man. I think as we all discussed, um, it's, it's probably coincidental I, I think Ma's got into trouble before when he's tried to use the judiciary against Wang Jinping, and I think he's learned his lesson. Yeah, and it would not be uh, the slickest of slick moves to uh, do this right after uh, such a big election. Yes, as we were talking about earlier, um, so close to the election, it just is going to raise eyebrows. So it's probably coincidental because it'd be quite obvious if there was a culprit. Uh, I, th- I think we, we again, we need, we need to be fair to President Ma. I think it's extraordinarily unlikely that President Ma would have instructed the prosecutors to file the charges at this point in time. I, he just doesn't intervene at that level in, in the operations of, of the prosecutors. He, he is a he's not just a lawyer, but he's a constitutional scholar who has a lot of respect for uh, processes and, and si- systems and separation of power. So unlikely he would intervene. If anything, it, w- it would be the prosecutors uh, seeking to establish uh, good relations with the incoming government and, and saying uh, you know, we're, we're, we're willing to go after KMT legislators or KMT-affiliated aides to, to legislators and, and we're not afraid of powerful KMT people. Apparently the, the Taipei District Prosecutor's Office has said that it opened this investigation into shenanigans in the legislative UN in 2013. That's when it received a tip-off. So, you know, it's, it's not a new... They've obviously, it's been on someone's desk for quite some time, you could say. Right. And so that just kind of feeds the whole uh, timing question. Uh, but, you know, as as Ross mentions, who knows what the motivation might be there? Uh, there's uh, certainly uh, several different plays that it could be. 
Right, and so the next big thing on the horizon, speaking of timing, is uh, the fight over uh, the chairmanship of the KMT. We don't have a lot of time for this, uh, but right before we head out to a break, uh, Gavin, can you break us down a little bit for this? Uh, the reason that this relates to that chairmanship fight is because there's some speculation that since uh, Mr. Lean is uh, Wong's right-hand man, perhaps that would hurt his bid to be the KMT chairman. Uh, what are the other names that have been put into uh, the ring for uh, the chairmanship bid? Well, so far, we've got former Taipei Mayor Halong Bing says he wants to run. We've got four, oh, current, I guess, Deputy Legislative Speaker Hong Shou Ju saying she's going to run. And we've also got a Taipei City Councillor by the name of Zhong Xiaoping, who also intends to run to the, for the KMT chairmanship. A couple of other names have been floated around, those names being Vice President Wu Duni and former Taichung Mayor Jason Hu. However, neither of them or their people have stated anything about their intentions to run yet. So we've got actually three people running so far for the KMT chairmanship. All right. And that's not till March, right? March the 26th. They're March the their, 26th. Their, their big vote. Yes. All right. So uh, just another uh, thread to follow in all of this is uh, Taiwan kind of uh, realigns and uh, everything kind of gets back into whack after these uh, big elections that threw everything out of whack. So uh, a lot to watch in the next couple of months. Uh, but we're going to have to take a little break right now. When we return, we'll be taking a look at what's going to be next for each of Taiwan's main parties. Uh, now that the 2016 election has shaken things up for just about everybody. All that in a minute on Taiwan This Week. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week, ICRT's weekly roundup of news from around Taiwan. I'm Keith Menconi, joined by Gavin Phipps, Jane Ricards, and Ross Feingold. Up next, well, we wrapped up the last half discussing that uh, succession question for the KMT leadership. I would like to keep it focused on the KMT uh, now as we take a look at what changes are in store for Taiwan's politics in the wake of Saturday's election. Uh, well, this week we have been hearing about reform proposals from some KMT members. Uh, the big changes uh, that I've been hearing this week, I think uh, are, there's three of them. Uh, one of them would be changing the party name from uh, Chinese Nationalist Party to Nationalist Party, so taking uh, the two characters for Chinese out of the front of there. Uh, the other one, disposing fully of the party assets. Uh, and lastly, democratizing the party structure. So lots of uh, various reform proposals there. Uh, but Gavin, there's uh, been a bit of a backlash this week. There's been a bit of a backlash over let's, quite a few of them, actually. Of course, the, uh, let's start with the beginning. Let's start with Hong Shou Ju, of course. She's the current Deputy Legislative Speaker, and she's going to run, of course, for KMT, the chairmanship post. And she came out with saying she's fully against changing the name of the party and taking the word China out. She doesn't believe in that. That's what she said, because, which, of course, goes back to her running when she temporarily ran for president. Of course, her big thing was China, which, of course, was one of the reasons that the KMT was rumoured to have sort of pushed her to one side. But apparently she doesn't want to get rid of the name. All the, well, the main, set, the main, the main how long being Anne Hong have both agreed that the party assets, as well as the former chairman, Eric Jew, have said the party assets must be gotten rid of, because, of course... This doesn't. This gets brought up every time there's an election. This assets thing, and I think they just want to ditch them. Of course, so there's some question over which direction the KMT is going to actually reform the party. Mm. It's trying to attract younger people. Obviously, younger people they realised are more Taiwan-centric than China-centric, and of course they got what could be called not not, not I won't call them elderly people because Hong is not that old, and How Long Bing's not much older than me. But you know more. <laughs> 
senior people within senior the party, people. so to yes. speak. Yeah, the, uh, the the party elders, the party... Uh, not quite elders, Not as quite saying. elders, yeah. Uh, so, so, Jane, I mean, it's interesting to me that just as uh, we, you know, hear these calls for reforms, the, uh, the pushback on that is pretty much immediate. What direction do you see the KMT going in uh, in the wake of this election? I just don't think we'll know anything until we know who the chairperson is, or chairman mm. or chairwoman, and what plans they have. Mm-hmm. Um, the KMT's always been a divided party. It's always had a mixture of nativist politicians and you know, the descendants of mainland immigrants who came over with Chiang Kai-shek in 1949. It's always been like that. And I don't think we'll really know till it's got a leader and the leader starts making plans. Mm-hmm. But my only other comment about that is they take the Chinese out of the name. Um, it'd be really interesting to know how China reacts because the KMT's calling card, which um, Ma didn't play very well and, in fact, didn't do a good job at all. But um, the KMT can actually go and talk to China because they've got this unfinished business with the Chinese communists historically dating mm. back to the Civil War. And that's the sort of, um, the, that's sort of the, the, the pretext they used to have these get-togethers. And it'd be interesting to know if the KMT localises how China's going to take that. And if the KMT is just as isolated from China as the DPP, then how does it separate itself from the DPP? How does it define itself? That would change the dynamic somewhat, yeah. <laughs> Uh, Ross, uh, so do you agree with that? We're, we're just the next two months are really going to be about watching the party reformulate, and in, in terms of reform, uh, it's way too early to start talking about that. It's early, and ultimately, uh, things like a name change are just cosmetic. What, what the issue really comes down to is, is policy ideas, and can the party propose policy ideas going forward, even with a minority in the legislative UN? Uh, in the next election, local election or national election cycles, can they propose policies that are, are beneficial for the people of Taiwan? That's that's what it ultimately come down to. Uh, and, and they're not there yet, right? There's going to be a number of people who are exiting the scene, legislators who lost their seats and previously had a high profile in, in, in promoting various policies. Uh, as we talked about, they'll have to be a new chairman who will lead the way on new policies. Uh, but th- that's what it'll come down to. All right. So a, a lot to watch there. But uh, now we're going to move on to the DPP end of things. And uh, there was a lot going on in that end of the world as uh, well. Uh, they held a meeting of their central standing committee on Wednesday. Uh, and the word of the day was legislative reform. Uh, we heard a lot about this from uh, Chairperson Tsai. Uh, and Gavin, uh, what kind of reform are we talking about here? Well, the DPP meant that several reforms. The DPP did say before it was elected it did plan to push for wider legislative reforms. And these reforms included reforms to the voting system, the number of seats available, improvement of legislative efficiency and transparency. But the big issue, of course, is the DPP's call to make the post of legislative speaker completely neutral. And And basically the DPP came out and said the legislative speaker and his deputy... They, they should both be elected in an open vote instead of a secret ballot, as has been the case in the past, and the legislative speaker and his deputy should not be permitted to attend any political party activities, serve in any ranking political positions, or attend any negotiation sessions of the legislative caucuses of either party. Which right. is the main, and that's the big one at the moment. That's the one that's yeah. hit the headlines this week. 
All right. So before we get into discussing what might be behind that particular proposal,、uh, just to help us understand, give us a civics lesson, I guess.、Uh, Ross, help us break down what exactly is、uh, the role of the legislative speaker in Taiwan's、uh, form of government. Sure. In, in Taiwan, as, as in other democracies around the world,、uh, the, the speaker plays a very important role in moving legislation along through the process. So when a a proposed law is is still being negotiated. And reviewed in, at the committee level, and then getting through the committee and onto the floor、uh, of the legislature, and whether or not there are going to be amendments when the bill reaches the floor, when votes are going to be scheduled, etc. And this is a crucial role. And, and to be fair to Speaker Wong,、uh, he's developed a reputation as, as somebody who, who facilitates negotiation at times when、uh, the legislature was was quite partisan and, and views were very strongly held on either side of the political divide. And that that is a, a crucial role. So I'm somewhat perplexed by Chairman Tsai or President-elect Tsai's proposal, simply because well, why would it apply to the Speaker and the Deputy Speaker, but not apply to the President, who's going to be concurrently chairperson of the party and the Premier or other ministers in the government, most of whom we assume are going to be. Senior DPP members, right? You mentioned Legislative Speaker Wong right there, and、uh, Jane. I, I, I think part of the answer to Ross's question as to what is the rationale behind this,、uh, whether we would agree with that rationale or not,、uh, is just that、uh, Legislative Speaker Wong and his、uh, long tenure in the Legislative Yuan. Yeah, well, first I would say that、um, uh, DPP legislator Liu Shifang she told me that the DPP won't necessarily be appointing ministers who are DPP members, and they plan to recruit talent from other parties, and they're looking for people with previous cabinet experience and there's shortage of expertise in areas such as defence. So I don't think that the new cabinet under the DPP will necessarily be entirely DPP.、Um, yeah, there were perceptions that Wang wielded too much. Power.、Um, there was a lot of sort of backroom deals, so it was kind of difficult to assess, you know, how much power he wielded. But for example, he didn't work in conjunction with Ma Ying-jeou when he didn't let the students,、um, when the, the sunflower students were protesting in the legislative yuan. He ref- he he refused to agree, you know support Ma and use the police to remove the students. So.、Um, In a sense, the legislature was sort of opposed, was you know,、um, opposed to the presidency. So it was kind of operating as sort of a political body with its own agenda,、mm. um, which, which I mean, it was. I, I support the students, so it was a good thing. But、um, I'm just saying that Wang did sort of wield power in that sense. This move seems like it would make the、uh, legislative yuan even more independent than if it、uh, is less associated with the party. Yes, well, just on the face of it, I think that's a good idea. I mean, obviously, it would resemble the British system where the legislative speaker is independent. But I mean, if the speaker's there to sort of facilitate bills, to sort of clear clear committees and get put to the floor and to keep order,、um, I think it'd be very important for the legislative speaker to be independent because otherwise, there's obviously a tendency towards bias.、Mm. Like, for example, keeping order. If the DPP's sort of、um, if people are really acting up, there's Naturally, a tendency if you're supporting your party to accuse the other side of being more rowdy than your own party and things like that. So, I think neutrality is actually quite important. Okay,、right. given the DPP's large majority in, in the new legislative yuan, it's, it's highly likely that the next speaker and possibly the deputy speaker will come from the DPP. It's going to be somebody who ran as a DPP candidate either in a constituency or or the、uh, party list, and it, it almost defies logic to think that. There, going to, there's going to be a firewall between 
the speaker and the operations of Party Central, especially given how we've been discussing this evening, how important decision-making at Party Central will be going forward, uh, given that the, the government and the parliament are controlled by the party. So to have a firewall around the speaker just doesn't um, seem logical or even possible. I agree with you that um, a firewall isn't completely possible. Um, my reaction to those propositions was that I hope they codify it because um, they've started they've started off being immensely popular and with a broad mandate with such a large legislative majority. But I think it might be a slippery slope if they start to be unpopular that, you know, the legislative speaker, despite his avowed neutrality, might be inclined, you know, it's a slippery slope. And my concern is that the legislative speaker might become more partisan as things progress. And that's why I think that they should codify it. If they want to do this, they should codify it to ensure that the system of having a neutral legislative speaker stays in place. All right. Uh, so I think uh, the the big question there is of uh, practicality and how do you, I mean, uh, legislative neutrality always, you know, the word neutrality sounds good, but uh, how do you give teeth to those proposals? How do you make them uh, practical and enactable? But uh, we'll see what the DPP comes up with on that front. Uh, the last point that I want to look at today before we round out this show is uh, cross-state relations and uh, of course, the big question hanging over the Tsai Ing-wen future presidency is uh, what will be that administration's approach to cross-strait relations? And we may have gotten just a little bit of a hint, a little bit of a glimpse at uh, the answer to that question uh, when Tsai Ing-wen gave an interview to the Chinese-language Liberty Times paper earlier this week. Uh, and she talked a little bit about uh, cross-strait relations, her views on cross-strait relations. Uh, importantly, the term 92 consensus uh, did not come up during that interview, but she did talk about a common acknowledgments and understandings reached in 1992. So a very direct reference to uh, some of the uh, ideas, you know, codified in the ni- in 1992. So uh, I'm, I'm, I'm curious, uh, do we see this as any kind of an indication that she's uh, maybe going to formulate uh, a relationship with China that references the 92 consensus in any way? Ross? It still remains to be seen, uh, and we don't know how China will react to different wording. That's part of the process that's going on right now, whether it's through media interviews and floating ideas or behind-the-scenes negotiations that might be taking place between the incoming government and and China. Uh, But but ultimately, in order for the two sides to continue face-to-face negotiations at a government-to-government level, which is one of the big achievements in recent years, that the negotiations move from the proxy organizations to government to government. Both sides obviously need to be comfortable with the wording that is used to describe the relationship. And that's the challenge for President-elect Tsai. Right. And, uh, of course, it's, uh, it's, it's worth bearing in mind that uh, the 92 consensus has uh, been uh, the basis for relations between the ROC and China under the Ma administration. Uh, so, uh, Jane, what do you take away from this? Uh, any hints at the way that uh, that relationship is going to be formulated under a Thai administration? Well, what strikes me the most is that um, this is actually nothing new, what she said, because something very similar was actually said in the days of the Chen Shui-bian administration. That in the days of the Chen Shui-bian administration, when they were referring to the series of meetings in Singapore, they were talking about a process that took place. 
and when Chen Shui Bian's government negotiated for the um, holiday charter flights, which were actually the first sort of direct flights, which actually took place under the Chen administration, that was the formula they used. So in some ways, um, what Tsai says isn't anything new. Um, some Chinese scholars have said that um, if the 1992 consensus is reformulated using different wording, it might be acceptable. Um, Tsai's obviously trying to appear as um, conciliatory towards China as she can without accepting the 1992 consensus, which would be political suicide given the popularity of the Ma government. Um, the only thing I can say is I don't believe Tsai will move any further down the spectrum towards independence. Mm. Um, so the whole question is is how, how far is she prepared to move to the – not the centre, but how far is she prepared to accept – one China. Right. I mean, that's the yeah. radioactive thing here is yes. the one China principle. Yep. Yep. Uh, and uh, I mean, don't we expect that to be basically China's bottom line is the one China principle? Any formulation that doesn't include the one China principle, which the 92 mm. consensus does, wouldn't they find that unacceptable? They probably would. But I, another thing I would say about Tsai's comments in the Liberty Times, it also reflected what she said during the presidential debates, because she said that the 1992 consensus was just one option. So when she talks about respecting and understanding, I think she's sort of being very, very ambiguous, which is her, um, you know... Modus of the Yes, exactly. But mm-hmm. is it is it mm-hmm. one option for China or is it the only option? And I think we don't know for sure. So if she mm-hmm. presents different formulations... Mm-hmm. Uh, that does not mean they are acceptable to China. So we, we could mm-hmm. put all the blame on China and say they're being intransigent, which might be the case. However, the the practical result might be a a, a delay or a halt in in government to government interactions, and ultimately that that would put a, bring a halt to uh, future agreements. Yeah, I think China's bottom line is one China, and I think despite the sort of very soft tone in her comments to the Liberty Times, she still didn't come out and accept it. Mm. She moved as I think those comments were kind of moving as close as she could without accepting it. All right. Well, uh, it looks like we have kind of identified uh, some of the the major threads, some of the major plot lines that we're going to be following for the next couple of months today. So, uh, good work, guys. We know what to look out for now. All right. Last one up for today. This one is uh, going to be for our podcast listeners. This one's uh, not exactly a funny story. We uh, will try to get back to those once we uh, are further away from the elections. Uh, But one of the big calls for reform that we heard from this week uh, was calls to move Taiwan's national government. Uh, Gavin, this came uh, from both the KMT and the DPP. Uh, What were they talking about here? Well, it's not, not really a new idea. It's been floated before. But, of course, William Lai, who's the mayor of Tainan, Chen Zhu, the mayor of Kaohsiung, and several KMT officials sort of said, eh, yes, let's mull the idea once again of moving parts of the central government to p- other parts of the island. And under Mayor William Lai's plan, the legislative UN and the executive UN would be moved to Taichung. Mm. The central government, the presidential building would be moved to Tainan. And the other idea was to move... He gave an example, which I thought was rather inane, but he said, yes, the Labour the labor ministry should be moved to Kaohsiung because there are a lot of workers there. Uh-huh. That one I found a bit inane. He also <laughs> turned around and said that um, these new government buildings should be near high-speed rail stations, 
which of course means you could build a humongous building the size of the Pentagon near some of these high-speed rail stations, because of course there's nothing around them at the moment. Which That's very I, convenient. You know, it's one way of using the land. But of course, I, like happened before with this idea, I think most people will just dismiss it. Ross, would you, if you were working for the government, would you be happy if someone said, "Can you move to Tainan from next Monday?" Uh, I suppose it would depend on on where I grew up and where my family and, and friends are. But a, as you mentioned, the, this idea has been floated repeatedly. It's kind of like the idea of making Taiwan into an Asia-Pacific regional operations center, another one of those government ideas that seems to come up every few years and never goes anywhere. The, the closest we seem to have gotten to implementing shreds or, or pieces of this proposal is to have a branch of the National Palace Museum in southern Taiwan. But practically, this is this is unrealistic. There's There's no money there's, there's no budget to do this, and it would cost a tremendous amount of money. And, and for those of us with experience in, in Europe, we, we know how challenging it is when, when the EU parliament and, and the EU commission uh, switches off between uh, Strasbourg and, and Brussels periodically, and, and everybody gets to go on the train and travel back and forth, and it's just a huge waste of time and money. But it does kind of it, it raises the possibility of you know you hop on the uh, high speed rail and uh, you're joined by a bunch of government officials zipping along with you every time you get on there. Well, uh, if if the speaker of the legislative UN's there, we, obviously we wouldn't be able to talk to that, that speaker because they <laughs> to have maintain this neutrality. Right. Yeah, they, no, they that's might fair. Have to, get, to get their own car, they have to get their own car. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Jane, uh, well, you, you, you cover Taiwan. How would yeah. that affect you to have the, you know, the uh, commercial center in one place, the legislative yeah. center in another place, the executive center in another place? That would, that would raise your bottom line, wouldn't it? Yeah, my heart sank, and I just thought I'd have to apply for a travel budget. Cause, oh, man. Yeah, it'd be quite expensive to be a freelancer. But the food's good down in Tainan. You could start covering food a little bit. Yes, you could, but you still got to travel there to get there. And, yeah. yeah. Uh, any any demand for food stories in The Economist? I suppose not. No. <laughs> uh, unfortunately. All right. Well, uh, just a proposal that is out there. Uh, sounds like the, the word coming from here is uh, don't hold your breath. But Well, uh, as The Economist famously said recently, a tie is just a tie. <sighs> we will leave that. We will leave that as the closing line for today. <laughs> Amid chuckles uh, and goodwill, I assume. Chuckles and goodwill. So that's it for the show today. You can send us your thoughts on the week's major stories on the Facebook page or on our blog. You'll also be able to find this program online at the ICRT website and on iTunes. If you are listening to iTunes, please take a second to rate and review the show. Let's us know what you're thinking and helps other people discover the program. Signing off from the ICRT studio, I'm Keith Menconi, joined by Gavin Phipps. Yeah, goodbye, Keith. Ross Feingold. Good night. And Jane Ricards. Good night. Thank you all for listening. See you again next time on Taiwan This Week. Tune in again next Friday evening at 8.30 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.